让生命历历，虚空粉碎也，放心当下。Chan Chronicles, Venerable Master Xuan Hua's life and legacy kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples. In this episode, we learn Master Hua's views on intoxicants in the context of his guideline of no pursuit of self-benefit. Master Hua was never judgmental about people who showed up at the monastery stoned or high or tripping. It wasn't. It was never. Oh, the Buddha doesn't like you. It was. Oh, you put that in your system. Oh, okay. Well.、Uh, This will still be here when you're done. I'm sorry that you did that because you you delayed your own discovery of of insight. No problem. We're still here. You know, this is a safe space. Nobody's gonna hurt you while you recover, but your progress will be delayed until you're back. That was always the way it was. It was a very compassionate response. I'm your host, Fabrizio Alberico. Please visit our website, dharmaradio.org, for more information about these podcasts and the people and organizations that make them possible. We've been talking about the six guidelines that Master Hua left us with. And we're on to the guideline of no pursuit of self-benefit or abuse of intoxicants. And the previous four,、uh, no fighting, no greed, no seeking, no selfishness. These are all pretty universal、uh, in terms of religions and spiritual practices. It's always a good idea not to harm, not to steal,、uh, not to lust, and not to lie.、Um, Buddhism perhaps gives a, a more nuanced. Point of reference here in terms of this abuse of intoxicants and pursuit of self-benefit, and I'm wondering, Hung Shu, if you could guide us through some of that. Yeah, I'd like to. The、uh, notion that alcohol and drugs generally called intoxicants, and now I guess we have to include opioids and prescription drugs as、uh, harmful to your spiritual pursuit, is not unique in Buddhism, although it's expressed. It's emphasized in Buddhism. Islam is also、uh, a religion that encourages sobriety. Uh, Hinduism uh, doesn't encourage alcohol use and abuse. Uh, of course, the, Hinduism is a big, broad umbrella. But by and large, Buddhism is specific in saying that intoxicants are harmful to your spiritual path; that they obstruct. Your wisdom, and it's that single concept that I think point you can point to as the reason why the goal of the Buddha's search for liberation was wisdom. Wisdom is an internal process; it has entirely to do with your own state of cultivation of body and mind. And wisdom results when your mind is clear. And focused. Anything that you introduce into your system, substances, is going to carry that to another place. It's going to distort it. 
and further it when you get high uh, there's that feeling of wow I'm really soaring and then there's what follows which is gee I crashed I'm not feeling the way I did an hour or two hours three hours or last night and now I kind of now I'm hung over now I'm uh, crashed uh, now I have to rest so that reaction to the substance that you introduced is clearly not wisdom further it's not yours and it's hard to control so I think those are the reasons why Buddhism in its the the words that we use is you cultivate the mind ground you move from character to concentration or focus to insight and if you in that process you introduce alcohol let's say or you know drugs uh, the result is is distortion so that's that's the theory okay so let's make that connection self-benefit is the thing that Master Hua identified as no right he said no pursuit of self-benefit but it comes as a pair with no selfishness so in Chinese you say no selfishness no self-benefit why are those given as a pair because they correspond to me and mine me and mine and selfishness is me and self-benefit is things that support the me which is the stuff that I identify as mine now the Buddha in his uh, six years of cultivation in the mountains or in the woods uh, the jungle the forest of India in Australia it would be the bush the Buddha went to the bush for six years what he was doing was he was unpacking the self this false self the me he discovered that the me is a story that he had told himself and so no selfishness works there no self-benefit this fifth guideline works on the things the material the concrete stuff that I gather around the me that supports my view of self so you're unpacking that with the guideline that says no self-benefit you're working on that what we do if we uh, let's let me take a step back as you unpack that self-benefit what you discover through a process of meditation and this is true for probably anybody who meditates is you discover that that inner world that comes alive when you sit still and listen um, you discover that inner world is built around your senses so things I see things I hear smell taste touch and importantly things I think once you sit there and whether you're using a mantra maybe you're doing vipassana kind of meditation you might be counting your breath whatever particular method of of insight meditation uh, you're you're pursuing what you discover is that those states rise and fall there's the the reality that I operate through pretty much from every every waking minute when I'm not asleep when I'm not dreaming that reality is a very fluid kind of state it's it's not fixed at all it's based on things that 
uh, come to my six senses during the day. And by the way, Buddhism gives the, the mind the job of sense number six. When I was growing up in the West, it was like five senses. But Buddhism says the mind is just a sense. It's a sense organ. So what you discover as you meditate is that you can do this through yoga. You can do it through, through if you're a, a major long-distance swimmer or cyclist or runner, you get to that place they call the wall. What you discover is that's a very flexible, very fluid kind of reality. And if you're patient, you can make it through those limitations. And what you thought was real is, is just something you learned. Something that was a convention that you adopted. And so as you meditate, you discover, gee, this is really, this is very flexible. And, and uh, it's, it's not fixed and permanent whatsoever. And if you pursue that meditative stillness, you actually can transform those six senses and the reality that they support into something that the Buddha called wisdom. Okay, the goal is wisdom, and it arises through penetrating, through going, often the, the mystics and the Zen masters of all time often describe it as doors. You go through a door, and you go through a gate or a gateway, and what you discover is on the other side of that gateway is uh, another reality beyond the conventional reality that, that we operate in when we're awake and walking around, driving our cars, listening to our, our favorite playlist on our phone, our iTunes playlist, or Spotify, whatever it might be. That reality is very limited. It's like one room in your garage somewhere, or maybe your basement. It's your rec room in your house. And in fact, when you unpack when you go through that gateway in your mind, you discover that the world outside that small room is vast and boundless and pure and marvelous, wonderful. And at the, at the root of all this is this, uh, as the Buddha described, this suffering or this dissatisfaction, right, of, of this room feeling constrictive. It feels like, okay, there must be more than this. And so especially in the, the time that Master Hua came to America, the 1960s, 1970s, summer of love, everybody's experimenting with different ways of being. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll are, are taking hold because people are at the root dissatisfied with the status quo and seeking outside of themselves for something that makes more sense, that gives them a larger sense of, of themselves. And so how did Master Hua transform or uh, leverage this desire that already existed in people and instead of directing it towards drugs um, direct it inwards what was what was the mechanism there that you saw he taught us the practices of Buddhism Buddhist practice and they're they're said to be 84,000 <laughs> exactly 84,000 well that's the, the the term in Buddhism meaning the myriad practices including meditation so he meditated himself, he taught us to meditate. And simply by making those available, uh, he 
he was able to uh, to gather those individuals who, as you were just saying, uh, not only were dissatisfied with the the world around them, but found this desire to heal the brokenness that they felt. I talked about a small room of reality. In, you could say it another way. You could say this existential loneliness, this grief at the thought of, why do I feel so broken inside? I have a sense that there's a reward for finding a deeper connection. When I uh, go to Yosemite and look up at, at Half Dome, when I lay on my back on a summer night in the grass looking up at the sky and see the infinity of space and all those stars, I have a sense that that there's another way of being that is connected. And at this time, back in the 60s, it, when Master Hua arrived, it was the age of Aquarius we were talking about. And the, you know, Woodstock happened. And the here we are with half a million strong out on a Max Yasger's farm in upstate New York. And that had never been before in a peaceful way that that many people had come together other than Second World War to kill each other. You know, here we were for, you said, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, those were means to try to get beyond the, the limited boundaries of the self. And the sixth, this fifth guideline of seeking self-benefit and connecting to the precept against intoxicants is answering that need in a way that actually delivers something in your control. If I sense I'm dissatisfied with my present reality, so I'm going to drop this pill, I'm going to smoke this joint, I'm going to drink this pint, I'm going to uh, swallow these you know, prescription drugs in a search to get beyond the limitations of the self, well, your reality, quote, will be distorted for sure. You can get high, but you don't address the fundamental existential loneliness that uh, is only accessible, the, the solution to which is only accessible through exploring your six senses. Because when the when the alcohol runs its course, when the when the high is over, you're still back bound by eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Nothing has changed except now you've you've got a hangover to deal with. Now you've got whatever you've done to your synapses with the the opioids that you took. So, what Master Hua did in saying, "Here, sit down and meditate. Here, let's go bow. Now, let's go investigate a mantra, and see what that does." to uh as as you recite it does it calm your thoughts he provided these traditional techniques of buddhist practice to young people who were seeking uh, and said, oh, by the way, now I, I want to make this clear that Master Hua was never judgmental about people who showed up at the monastery stoned or high or tripping. It wasn't, it was never, oh, the Buddha doesn't like you. It was, oh, you put that in your system? Oh, okay. Well, 
uh, this will still be here when you're done. I'm sorry that you did that because you're, you, you delayed your own discovery of, of insight. No problem. We're still here. You know, this is a safe space. Nobody's going to hurt you while you recover, but your progress will be delayed until you're back. That was always the way it was. It was a very compassionate response. Um, as many of the people who showed up at the door of Gold Mountain Monastery or the Buddhist Lecture Hall in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s uh, had experimented with such things. We were, you know, that was the time college students had access for the first time to to mind-bending substances. And, and uh, when we came to the monastery, the anybody who stayed stoned uh, simply couldn't couldn't keep the meditation up. You can't sit still for an hour if you're if you're just, if your senses are distorted. You know it takes about it takes strength and focus to meditate for an hour. So the practices replaced that high, and further it was yours. When you when the meditation was over, there was no high, there was no low. You didn't uh, you didn't have to recover from the acceleration of getting stoned or tripping. Uh, so it was it was a real, uh, it wasn't, there was never any sense that, oh, you smoke that joint, you're bad and wrong. It was, uh, when you're done uh, getting high, come meditate, try that. So the, the practices of the Dharma working in the mind uh, were this available alternative, which was so much uh, more powerful because it didn't start, it didn't end. The and, and when you were done meditating, the benefits of that stillness and that clarity and that focus uh, were an advantage to everything else you did in your life. something quite powerful in, in Master Hua that drew that possibility out of people. I mean, you say that, you know, that people just kind of made the switch from pursuing drugs or whatever other addictions and instead went to meditation. It couldn't have been that simple. There must have been something about Master Hua that made people wake up to the possibility of something else existing that didn't involve reaching outside of themselves. Can you Put that into words for us somehow? Um, sure. First of all, he was never happy. He was never unhappy. He was like a mirror. And that's it's uh, sounds it's hard to capture. But face-to-face with Master Shenhua, you had this sense that you were looking at yourself with all of your faults intact, all of your warts and your drawbacks and your limitations. And in that very same gaze, you saw your potential for wisdom and compassion. You saw your Buddhahood, that just right there in that look. And yet he himself uh, was not pleased if you praised him, and he wasn't upset if you ignored him. He didn't ask for anything from anyone. He, uh, Master Hua was just like this mirror, and looking at him, 
you found support. You found uh, uh, absolute clarity about who you were. For example, uh, when I became a disciple, when I took refuge, uh, I got a Dharma name. And it was, as we mentioned in our last conversation about uh, lying, and when uh, uh, I had it translated, Guajan, I said, oh, what a nice name, true, because I tell the truth. He says, no, it's not because you tell the truth, it's the opposite, it's because you lie too much. If you cultivate, you can find the fruition of the truth, Guajan. And this is, I had only spoken to him maybe twice before in my whole life, and here was this Chinese Buddhist monk uh, who was older than I was, so he was an elder compared to me, a, you know, a college kid. But he was telling me right to my face about a fundamental flaw in my character, and I was willing to take it. I understood it from him in a way that had he just been uh, some individual on this, you know, I had met in a seminar or in a classroom, I would have been offended by it. I w or I would have been uh, angered by it. Somebody telling me that I'm a liar. Uh, from Master Hua, I could see in his mirror of his wisdom and compassion that this was a priceless insight. It was truly something that if I changed, I could approach that level of clarity, of compassion, of sympathy, or empathy. He was with me. He wasn't, and yet he was just, if I, as soon as I stepped away from his gaze, his mirror was quiet until the next person stepped in. And then here was this perfect reflection of how you could improve to become wise and compassionate, but exactly where you were at the moment, impartial, uh, unafraid of being disliked, you know, and wanting nothing from you whatsoever. So that was, I hadn't met that before. So, um, the non-judgmental aspect of this fifth guideline I want to bring out. While I was on a pilgrimage, I was traveling up the California coast in my Buddhist robes as a monk with my companion, and we uh, were available to the public because we didn't go indoors. We stayed outside for two and a half years. So one night we were in a station wagon outside a laundromat in central California, and this guy knocked on the door. He said, uh, hey, you're uh, monks, right? Yeah, we're monks. He said, uh, "Have you? What do you? What do you brew? Have you got any kind of like port, or do you do you do, you do stout or what? Mead? What, what kind of drinks do you make?" He said, "No, we're we're not that kind of monks. Not he said, not that kind of monks. Don't don't all monks brew alcohol?" He said, "Some of the best wines I ever had in Europe were from the monks. Beer, right?" He said, "No, no, no. We're Buddhists. Oh, Buddhist monks? You don't drink? Who wants to do that?" He said. So he had he had connected that monks did monks were brewers we were we were beer makers and apparently uh, there are Catholic orders in in Europe that are famous for their for their alcohol and they grow their own grapes or they make their own mead and stuff so it came home that people don't know uh, 
this the why Buddhists are sober. You know, sobriety, clarity, uh, wisdom, and insight are all uh, like transparent overlays that that are necessary if you're going to get to the bottom of your mind. And so that's that's the positive side. But think of it this way: if I'm not a monk, if I'm just somebody who wants to get the benefit of of uh, spiritual insight that Buddhism provides. And I say, okay, why would I want to be sober? Why would I want to not seek personal advantage and stop getting high? If you think about how much social grief, how much family breakup is, arises because of alcoholism, because of addiction, the prisons are full of people who... Uh, ran afoul of our laws against dealing in intoxicants. And why is that? Why are so many people uh, reaching out for something to change their reality? And when I, I was one of them. I didn't run into the law while I was a college student with my buddies, but some of my friends did. And once I started to do Buddhist meditation, I realized that I had what, I, what had motivated me to experiment with substances was a sense of exploring reality. But I was using distortion to explore reality. What I was exploring when I was high, when I had a head full of smoke or, you know, six beers or whatever it was with my buddies, I was exploring distortion. It was distortion-based exploration of reality. When I started to meditate, it was reality-based exploration of reality. And once I dug into Buddhism, the Buddha said, the, quote, reality that you're talking about is not real, ultimately. It's only based on conditions. For example, the mind is a story that I tell myself. The... If I'm, uh, let's say I'm chanting, the sound that I'm hearing is based on the conditions of my voice. The ears that I'm hearing it with are conditioned. They're, they come together. I'm hearing differently now than I will when I'm 80 years old. Uh, and the, uh, the consciousness that is distinguishing the sound and, and as it contacts my ear is also based on conditions. Uh, if you don't believe it, just change the language, switch into French, and suddenly that consciousness goes haywire. I don't understand what you're saying. So you go, what's going on? Is it all based on conditions? We we'll say, right, your reality is indeed constructed. To say it's real is, it's useful. It's a useful construction. It's not ultimately true. Only if my mind is free of substances can I unpack that one. And that's where the Buddha's state of wisdom arises. So we're, you know, clearing my mind of substances is the first step towards genuine exploration of consciousness or reality. So that's why Buddhism says no intoxicants.
I was bowing on that pilgrimage, I recall um, somebody made an offering of marzipan candy, and uh, they, it was just some some person who pulled up on the highway and a couple of young people, and they said, "Oh, you're bowing. That's great. Well, here, here's, here's some marzipan." And we made it at home. It's ours, you know. Oh, okay. So that's nice. So we, I had a piece, and and Marty, my companion, had a piece. And after lunch, suddenly the ground turned to liquid, and we were, we had to sit down, and uh, the sky turned to, you know, colors, rainbow colors, and the car drove by again, the same car. Hey, monks, how do you like the marzipan? Ha ha ha. And it was laced with with substance, right? Probably acid. And so we had a terrible, uh, terrible afternoon trying to keep ourselves from wandering on the highway. And the next morning, Master Hua showed up. We were in uh, Saint Catherine, down in Santa Catalina. Where were we? Down in uh, in Ventura County. And he, Master Hua, had been in San Francisco the day before, but he got the car together and showed up uh, outside where we were bowing and uh, uh, did some did some prayers and chanting and we felt this state lift we were back on track and somehow he he had known that this had happened and uh, just kind of compassionately put us back in back in shape and there was no harm done but it was uh, the idea, but his attitude towards intoxicants was not one of punishment. This idea of seeking personal advantage, it was, it's getting your viewpoint, getting your compass aimed back at north. Because why? The Buddha's state arises from transformation of consciousness. When you add stuff into your body and mind, seeking to get high, seeking to change your state, it's it's an obstruction. You're obstructing the tool. You're muddying up the water that has to be perfectly clear before you can see to the bottom of your mind. concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. Many thanks go out to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and Reverend Hung Shur for their hospitality. Our website, once again, dharmaradio.org, has much more for you to click through. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes of Chan Chronicles as soon as they're available. Amitofo. Amitofo.